uh, you're joining us and you missed last week, uh, I'd love you to listen to it because this is one sermon that Jesus gave and it all connects together. So the challenge in what we're doing, which is we were breaking it up and doing it from Sunday to Sunday, is that some kind of key context which we began to look at last week, uh, we, we may be missing here. But I'll try and bring you up to speed if you weren't here last week. Before we do that, let's have a look at what we're looking at today, this passage from Matthew 5 from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. We'll pause there. <laughs> you are the salt of the earth. Who's the you that Jesus is talking about? Yes, and, but it's all the stuff we looked at last week on the Beatitudes. That's who Jesus is saying. It's the downtrodden. It's the oppressed. It's the poor in spirit. It's the person who's been ripped off. It's the person who's hungering and thirsting for justice in this land. And, the, and it's like they're longing for it. It's the humble in heart. That's who Jesus is talking to. He's saying, that's the you here. So if you feel broken, despised, downtrodden, like a failure, like you don't add up, this is, who he's say, this is what he's saying to you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Then Jesus, now this is a really key part to the whole, to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely vital that we get this, and I'm going to unpack it this morning. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now there's a lot going on here, so let's, um, let's really go for it. <laughs> Hold on to someone or something. So let's work, let's work, let's work uh, our way through it. You are the salt of the earth. You who aren't at the top of the pile. You, the normal, the broken, the overlooked you. You are called, as you follow Jesus, to bring flavor to the world around you. And uh, there's a danger, though, and Jesus is saying this to us, that if we lose something of our flavor, we're no good for anything. And so the invitation is that we, there would be a distinctive way of our lives and in our character because we follow Jesus. And he's going to unpack what he means by that as we go through the sermon. Uh, and then he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. The same way, let your light shine before others. So you are the light of the world. Uh, listen to this. This is... Um, by a guy called Nolan, uh, J. Nolan, from the Gospel of Matthew, a commentary on the Greek text. Now, the reason I say that is because this isn't some hyped-up Pentecostal pastor getting all frothed on this. This is a boring academic. This is what he says. To build a city on a hill, is it on there? I don't know if I've got this on there, Cass. Uh, Cass. Oh, there we go. That'll do. Um, to build a city on a hill is a piece of assertiveness. 
It expresses a certain confidence and a claim to importance and flags a desire on the part of the inhabitants to play a wider role in human affairs. People who want to live a quiet and secluded life build their cities tucked out of sight in the hope that they won't be noticed. So what Jesus is saying here is that actually Bay Vineyard and all the different churches in the Bay were called to be like a city on a hill. There's something quite bold about that. This church, just speaking for this church, we're called to be something in the Bay that's like a light on a hill. And we've talked about a lot of things in the last couple of months as we've started this church around what are the sort of distinctives that we want to have as Bay Vineyard. So we want to be a light on the hill because we want to be a place filled with joy and a place that's joy deficient and a culture that's joy deficient. And so how do most people have joy? They get on the Raz every weekend and that's the best joy they can find. And when you meet Jesus, you meet the source of joy. So Christians are called to actually embody something so filled with joy in the midst of our suffering sometimes that it's like, whoa, that's attractive. A place of peace we've talked about. We are going to battle against stress and busyness. We're going to rage against that because Jesus says, come to me and rest. So we don't live the way the world lives. We're going to fight and learn to be, an, we're going to be an apprentice of Jesus to learn a whole new way of living that's beautiful. And so we, when people start engaging with Bay Vineyard, it's like, oh man, or any church, it's like, oh, this, we need this in our culture. But there's a sense of like, like in the vineyard, which is our flavor, now most of you guys, some of you have some history in the vineyard historically, most of you, there's a whole brand new world. The vineyard's just been pretty rubbish at putting itself out there. So like my Pentecostal friends will be like, we're running a conference, it's gonna change the nation, you should all come along, <laughs> right? And it's like, Okay, you know, and because what the Pentecostals have done is, that, and this is to their credit, is that they haven't bowed down to our culture of who am I, and oh, I'm just a Kiwi that's a bit rubbish or whatever. They've gone and gone, no, we, we carry the message that's the hope of the world, so we want to tell the world. So come on, everyone, get along. It's like, and so we've, in the vineyard, I mean, saying this to some of our pastors, we've got to learn from the Pentecostals and say, we've got something very special to offer, not just the churches, and the, we've got something very special to offer our culture in terms of who we are, in terms of our passion for this bicultural journey we're on, for this passion uh, for the peace and joy and, and this depth that we would know God deeply. So we want to tell the world about it. So we're called to be a light. We are called to be a light. We're called to be like a city on a hill. Francis R.T. in another boring commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The combined impact of the many lights which make up a town at night illustrates more appropriately than the single lamp of verse 15 the corporate effect of the disciple community on the surrounding darkness. So here's the thing, it's awesome that we all have our private worlds with Jesus, but the reason he's called us to be part of a church is so that our light can shine more brightly in the context of us coming together. But the other thing I do want to point out is that when Jesus talks about the metaphor of a city on a hill, there's a whole lot going on in that metaphor because to have a city, you need infrastructure, you need systems, you need plumbing, you need electricity, and no one likes complex, everyone loves simple. And people look at complex and say, that's not very spiritual. You have not read the Chronicles, which is just rosters on a massive megachurch in the Old Testament, which is just the norm. 
So we've got to get used to the fact when churches start to grow, it gets complex. We need more systems because we want to be a bright light in this region, okay? That's, again, things like Bless the Bay that we did a little while ago. We've got to keep dreaming and scheming about how we can radically bless this community. How do we, like, I like the fact we gather, but we've got to also bust down the walls and get out, serve. We're here not to conquer a place. We're here to serve a place. We're here to serve this region. All right. Let's move on, because I've got a lot to say this morning. Then this is a crucial part of the sermon. Jesus says in verse 17, can we go to the next slide or find, oh, here we go, here we go, let's do that, that's good, let's say that, thank you. Here's the message version, here's another way to put it, you're here to be a light, bringing out the God colors in the world. Don't you love that? When God created the world, he declared this is good. We don't live in an evil world, we live in a God-saturated world and we're called to draw out the beauty and the goodness that's all around us. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now, I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand. Shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. And by opening up to others, you'll be prompt. uh, You'll be prompt. uh, What have I done here? By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. Love it, this generous Father in heaven. Then he says this, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is an absolutely crucial part of Jesus' sermon. Because what's been happening up till then is that people have been looking at Jesus and going, like, mate, you're pretty liberal with some of those Mosaic laws that are a big deal for us. And not only that, but you're speaking like you've got such an authority that you can somehow, like, this is somehow your idea, like, that you're the one that kind of wrote those laws in the first place or something, and people are getting pretty itchy about Jesus. So he says this, I've come not to abolish this, but to, fo- to, to fulfill the law and the prophets here. Now, this is why on the big picture course, for those that have done it, the first session is what I call the meta-narrative of Scripture. So let's look at the big story of Scripture because Jesus didn't throw out the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. So Jesus knew the big story. He knew the big picture. He knew this beautiful narrative that has weaved its way from Genesis all the way through redemption through Abraham and Israel and through to the kings and then through to the prophets and all the ups and downs of that story. He knew that story inside and out and he recognized that he had come to fulfill all of that. So you cannot throw out the Old Testament and think it it doesn't have a meaning. But here's the key thing, is that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we have to be careful. Again, I've said this last week and it went quiet for a second. We don't have a flat text in the Bible where every single scripture carries the same weight. Because he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we're not getting rid of any of it, not a dot of it. But he's come to fulfill. And in coming Sundays, we're going to see Jesus say a number of times, you've heard it said, but I say. And we're going to look at that in a second. So we must be careful to understand that a fulfillment is happening here. What the law and the prophets were pointing to, Jesus completes. Brian Zand in an outstanding book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Get your heads around that. Oh my gosh, I love it. Uh, said this, what Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets had begun, Jesus would fulfill. 
The goal of the law and the prophets was to produce a society of fidelity and justice. Jesus and the kingdom he announces and enacts is where that project finds its fulfillment. The new society formed around Jesus was what the law and the prophets were aiming for all along. So to really understand what's happening here, we've got to look uh, a little bit forward in the, the Gospel of Matthew to what's called the Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And what happens there, it's very interesting. Jesus is with his closest disciples, and uh, in Mark chapter uh, 6, I think it is, it says this, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And Moses, so in this moment, on this mountain, uh, history suggests it might be Mount Tabor, uh, Jesus is like, before the disciples' eyes, he becomes like holy. And then what appears beside him is Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the greatest prophet, appear before them. And initially, Peter misinterprets the presence of Moses and Elijah or within the symbolism of the story the church misunderstood the relationship of the Old Testament to Jesus. Peter, James, and John are there representing the church, and as Peter speaks, he is the one that's just said, you are the Messiah, and Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, on this revelation. Then Peter goes, sees this, and so he, on behalf of the church and the symbolism of the story, he's like, ooh, uh, let's build three memorials to Moses and to Elijah and to Jesus as equals. And uh, Peter's implicit suggestion is that the Old Testament be given roughly the same authority as what Jesus is saying. Uh, but what can happen with the flat reading of the Bible is things like Jesus' teaching of nonviolence in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at, can be conveniently ignored because we find divine sanction for violence in the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus can be overruled by Moses and Elijah. It's gone quiet. But Mark tells us how Peter's suggestion for a triumvirate of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus was rebuked on Mount Tabor, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And they no longer saw anyone but Jesus standing there. So there's a whole lot going on here as Jesus says, I've not come to abolish, but I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets what those things were pointing to, Jesus finally really nails. And we're going to look at how he unpacks some of the examples that he does shortly. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the verse that is key for us to understand the whole Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to have to repeat this in coming Sundays. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how many people will read that verse is like this. Unless you behave to an absolute high standard, you cannot go to heaven when you die. That's how most people tragically read that scripture 
because we read so much into the text on the word righteousness and the word kingdom of heaven, and we get it so completely wrong. Because if that is what Jesus is saying, then the cross doesn't mean anything. That actually when Paul says that we are saved by faith, when he says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. All of that's redundant. So what on earth is Jesus saying here? Well, let's help. Uh, let's unpack this a little bit more. Firstly, there's this uh, word righteousness that he says there. Uh, it's this word in Greek, daikousuni. I don't know, you tell me. Daikai, daikousuni, is it up there? No, I didn't put it up there, it's all right. Doesn't really matter. I'm just saying it to sound flesh. Um, good. Uh, Jonathan Pennington in this commentary that I'm loving called The Sermon on the Mountain and uh, Human Flourishing, he defines it like this. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. And so what Jesus is going to do, so Jesus is saying that your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. So the first thing we've got to understand is that Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees here because what they've done is they've taken the law and the prophets and they've worked out all the detail around behavior, especially in front of other people. And so they're really good at appearing like they're doing the right thing. But what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that Jesus is saying it's not about right behavior, it's about a transformed heart that leads to the right behavior. Behavior, but if your heart hasn't changed, then it's just behavior. So what we are called to is that for our righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees. And our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees when we allow God to transform our heart. Okay? That's the only way. When you say, I want to be an apprentice of Jesus. Because we don't, like guys, I don't want us to just believe in Jesus. We're called to follow him. That's why we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like to live in the way of Jesus? And He is the source of life. So if we follow Jesus, we, we, we come to life. He is the life. Life is found in Him. And so this whole sermon is calling us to flourish as human beings by allowing our hearts to be His and for Him to transform our hearts. The second is that the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is saying here, now Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He sometimes uses the phrase kingdom of God. Um, Mark, Luke, and John exclusively use the word kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is not what happens when you die. He's talking about what happens when you live. So how can you come into this place where you're entering into the kingdom of heaven now Otherwise, the rest of the sermon makes no sense. He's going to talk about all sorts of behaviors, but he's, he's saying, I want your heart to be changed so that you can flourish in the present. And in fact, when he did talk about the kingdom of heaven, he would say, the kingdom of heaven's near. Now, those of you, again, that have done the big picture course will hopefully remember the video where we talk about heaven and earth overlapping. And that that was always the plan. Genesis 1, heaven and earth were like all united and it was all good. And then sin enters the story. And you know what? We rebel and we say, nah, I see what you're saying there, God, but I'm going to choose to do my own thing. We're all guilty of eating the apple even now, right? Or tomato or whatever, the fruit, whatever it was, right? Because we think we can live better by doing our own thing. But if you say, I want to live under your way, God, then the kingdom of heaven starts to break in to our own lives now. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. So here's the thing. You can't enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you start going, I want to learn to live under your way, Lord. So we're going to look at anger and lust and prayer and religious stuff and all that stuff that he's about to talk about in the sermon. His motivation is that you would know life in the present. So there's been a massive misreading and a massive misunderstanding and sadly focus on heaven and some disembodied heaven being the big goal of Christianity. It's not. It's the inbreaking of the kingdom here and now. That's why we're going to be passionate about the environment. Because the, kingdom, because the creation's groaning for the sons and daughters of God to rise up and be stewards like we're always meant to be stewards. This is why we're going to be passionate about Māori and Pākehā working together in unity here because on John chapter 8, in the age to come, John saw every tribe and tongue worshipping God. Tribal and cultural distinctives were, were expressed in the age to come. Not only that, but we're called to be agents in partnering with God and redeeming and restoring all things. So we're going to be part of the solution, not the problem. As tricky as that may be and as it's going to require patience and humility and uh, grace for one another and all of that. But we're going to take that journey because we want to be a light on a hill about what cultures coming together under the Lordship of Jesus can look like, especially when cultures can express themselves freely. Come on, come on. Tihei Māori ora. I've got to do my um, mihi and my um, pepiha this Tuesday night and I'm freaking out because I'm learning Māori with Jiao and all that. At some point, I'm going to have to, we're going to, I've got to get my tereo on in my sermon at some point, and then I'll make my teacher proud. Anyway, all right, where did I go there? I got very much on a tangent. So, Jesus is saying in that, in this verse, that if you want to flourish now, you've got to go past external behaviors that tick a box and allow God to transform your heart. And true rightness righteousness, true flourishing, remains a matter of our own hearts. And he's going to use all these examples, but it's his desire is that we'd know that now. And uh, Dallas Willard in the um, book, The Divine Conspiracy, which is a real exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, which I'd love again, <laughs> keep on giving you books every Sunday, but it's a great one to read. But he says this, the law is not the source of righteousness, but is forever the course of righteousness. So like when God spoke to Moses, what... Everything God says is motivated by love and leads us to life. And so as he spoke to the Israelites, he loved them and he wanted to see them flourish. And we're going to have to unpack how we read the Old Testament. We're going to have to learn again how to read the Old Testament because uh, there's an ongoing, um, it's not an ongoing revelation of God because he was always the same. But there's an ongoing unfolding understanding of the nature of God that unfolds itself through the Old Testament. So sometimes when things are said that God said, called them to do in the Old Testament, but it contradicts the Sermon on the Mount, we have to come to the conclusion they got it a bit wrong. Jesus is the only infallible Word of God. He's the only inerrant Word of God. And so I know this is pushing your thinking a bit, and I'm, you know, but... But the alternative is that God's schizophrenic or that God changes, and that's pure heresy. The early church had to wrestle with that. So the law, Jesus is saying, none of that goes. 
And the prophets, they were always calling the people to return to the way of God. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So that's why we've got to pay real close attention to the red letters. And as we look through the Sermon on the Mount in the context of a very broken culture and world, we uh, need to uh, take that seriously. And the law points to that, but Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So when we kind of step, when we walk with Jesus, we step into his ways and we drink in his power and Jesus shows us these ways really clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know I'm teasing you a whole lot about coming Sundays. That's what they do on radio. Coming up after the break, we're going to be you know, doing this competition and this song. This is, I want you to come for the next couple of Sundays because we're going to jump into some of these big subjects. And, uh, and there's some challenging stuff in there, but it's beautiful if you think just Jesus is for us in this. He wants to transform our hearts so that we can flourish. Uh, I come into land with this. Uh, I, I went out surfing on uh, Friday. It's my day off, so everyone knows. Everyone's like, oh, you mongrel. But I actually, whatever. Um, I did a bit of surfing. Though Aaron was surfing as well. Where's Aaron? And he, it wasn't a day off. It was just a normal day for Aaron. <laughs> Though he had, no, no, not to pick, not to pick on Aaron, but he, he had to go do then, probably had to grind his greenstone all night anyway, so to pay for his surf. But, um, but there's this guy out there, it's really annoying when you're a preacher, actually, because God's always kind of challenging you on the stuff you're preaching on. And um, I'm, a, I'm a couple of verses ahead of you guys in preparation for coming Sundays, particularly when, God, uh, when Jesus talks about anger, you know, and it's like, we can all, like, how often are we murder, you know what I'm going to say, eh? how much we want to murder people. Um, like, we don't, you know, it's like, I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, it's probably just good to, good to clarify that as your pastor. Um, but in my heart, I certainly uh, have, uh, which is what Jesus challenges, which is this, this new thing of righteousness. So I was out there on the surf on Friday with Aaron, and this guy snaked me, and that means he paddled behind me and took my wave. And, and I was a bit upset about it. You kill him. And Aaron, and I, no, it wasn't Aaron. <laughs> Thankfully, Aaron pointed it out, though, because I was like, did anyone see that? Did he just snake me? And then Aaron was like, bro, he just snaked you. And I was like, yeah. Thing is, I would have missed the wave anyway because I've eaten too much Burger King and my, my, and my board's too small. <laughs> but anyway, um, but then I'm thinking about this, this passage and I'm like, oh, Jesus, like, what does it look like for me to love the people that snake you in the surf, you know? <laughs> and this is the crazy thing is like Jesus, Jesus is like he's just with us every day calling us into this flourishing thing because What's the result of getting cross and angry? My surf gets ruined. You know, I could get in his grill or drop in on him or something. Like, it's just this cycle of, it's this negative cycle that our world is just stuck in. And like, what does Jesus do? Every, every bit of violence, and he absorbs it and returns love and forgiveness, even to those that execute him. Like, it's such a radical way of love that Jesus calls us to, and he's speaking all about this in the Sermon on the Mount and in some detail that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But it's why? Because it's the, light, it's the way of life and the way of love. And so I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't do anything, thankfully. Um, but I was just stewed, I was stewed up about it. And I was like, God, what is it? You know, and then I was like, I'm just dialoguing with Jesus. What does it look like for me to not murder this guy in my own heart, you know, and to... To respond in love and to respond. I come into land land with this. 
the blessed ones, the ones that flourish, uh, are the people, according to the sermon so far, that aren't the wealthy or the powerful or the uh, celebrity. It's the ordinary, the weak, the beaten up, the poor in spirit. These are the ones who are called to apply what Jesus is calling them to, to be salt, to be light. Like, it's not just the pastors on TV. It's just ordinary people who are called to somehow flavor this world and shine because they live a different way. And our tagline for our church, officially, I think we should make it, is hypocrites in transition. So even when we make mistakes, we still point to the cross and the glory of God. We're going to let each other down. We're going to let people down. But we, we worship and we point to the one who will never let us down, who was faultless, who's perfect. And so this Jesus says that he's the great fulfillment of all the scriptures say, and that to enter into the beautiful life with God, we need to follow his ways and his teaching and allow that to shape not just our behaviors, but ultimately to transform our hearts, which in turn then change truly how we behave because there's something deeper that's taken place. And so I want to, uh, just as we finish uh, Spend a moment just inviting the Holy Spirit just to minister to us afresh, that we would be captivated with the thought of not just believing in Jesus so that we go to heaven one day, but that we would be just once more captivated with this beautiful vision of flourishing as we follow Jesus, the author, the source, and the giver of all life. Lord, just come. Pray even now, just fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh. Even as we're seated this morning, fill us with, with your life. Thank you, Lord God, that you've called us to be a light. You've called us to shine brightly, and at times the church has really not done a great job of shining a really good light, and we acknowledge that and ask, Lord, that you would lead us as a little community here in the bay to be just a beautiful light that shines in this community and that would just be a beautiful sight and that would just be like, oh. I pray, Lord, for those that feel like 